0: I'm blessed this morning to be able to open up the word of God with you, and so a few weeks ago when Scott asked me to, if I could preach this Sunday, uh, I had just finished reading a short book on the doctrine of repentance by a Puritan writer named Thomas Watson, and so um, that kind of led me to, to thinking about sin, repentance, and, and remorse, grief over sin, um, And so as I thought what text I wanted to teach through, uh, that brought me around to Psalm chapter 51, to Psalm 51. So that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, We're going to go through the whole Psalm. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, um, and so we'll jump right in. As you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context. The book of Psalms, we know, is a collection of 150 poems, hymns, uh, spiritual songs, 150 prayers of God's people. Uh, And those Psalms are written by many different authors. There are five different named authors of the Psalms. By far, the most prolific of those named authors is King David. Uh, David is attributed in the Psalms with 73 of those 150. And then in the New Testament, our New Testament authors attribute another two Psalms to him that were uh, anonymous in the book of Psalms. So we know that David wrote at the very least half of our Psalms. And Psalm 51 is one of those Psalms of David. Um, But Psalm 51 is unique. And so As we go into it, as we jump in, I want to start with what's called the superscription. So right there, before Psalm 51-1, there's that text that's probably italicized in your Bible, and it gives us some context, some important things for our interpretation as, um, as we go through this prayer of David. So it starts with who the psalm is written to. It says, to the choir master. Then it says who the psalm is from, a psalm of David, right? So that's who it's written to, that's who it's written by. And then, what's unique about Psalm 51, something we don't get in very many of our Psalms, is we're given the occasion of writing. It's written to the choir master, it's written by David, the king of Israel, and here's the occasion of writing. It says, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is the occasion of writing. It is following Nathan's confrontation of David. So if you remember the story of, of David and Bathsheba, right, he's, he's on his roof, he looks down, he sees this beautiful woman bathing on her roof, and he lusts after her, he commits adultery with her because she's married to a man named Uriah, and then David hatches this elaborate plan to try to cover up his sin. When that doesn't work, he ends up having Uriah killed. He sends Uriah to the front lines, he pulls back all the rest of the armies that Uriah might die. David goes to such lengths to cover his sin that he ends up killing one of his closest men. A man who's listed in 1 Samuel among David's mighty men. A man who has been with David since before he sat on the throne of Israel. A man who was with David when he he was running from King Saul and David has him murdered in order to cover up the fact that he slept with his wife. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet of God, Nathan, comes before the king of Israel, David, and he tells him a story. Tells him a story of, of a poor man who had one little sheep and his neighbor, a rich man, who had many, many flocks, And when the rich man had to entertain a guest and he needed a sheep to kill, instead of killing one of his hundreds, he went to his neighbor, he stole that one sheep, and he slaughtered it to feed to his guests. And when David hears this story, he is incensed, he's angry. And what he says to the prophet is, as surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. And then how does Nathan respond? Nathan says, you are this man. You are this man. And then Nathan proceeds to deliver the Lord's rebuke, his judgment on David. And then David's response there in 2 Samuel 12 is simply this. 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And in 2 Samuel 12, in the, the narrative um, portion of this, of this story, that's all we get from David all we get is this simple admission, I have sinned against the Lord. But here in Psalm 51, we have a peek into David's mind. We see more deeply what David means when he admits, I have sinned against the Lord. We, we view into David's heart as he pours it out on the page that he has sinned. But what's really interesting about this psalm is that when we categorize psalms, we put them into to a couple different buckets. We talk about psalms of, of lament, and, and one of them, one of the specific categories of psalms is psalms of personal lament. And in a lot of ways, Psalm 51 fits that category. This is a personal lament. This is David talking about a very personal thing that has happened. He's talking about very personal sorrow, very personal grief. This is a personal lament. But as a personal lament, it is uniquely corporate. It's uniquely public, why? Because who is it written to? It's written to the choir master. See, this is David's personal confession before God. But it's written to the choir master. It's meant to be sung among God's people. So it's not just a personal confession, but it's a confession that we are all called to share in. That we are all called to sing together. Why is that? Because while this repentance that David is demonstrating here, it's personal, it's also something that every single one of us is called to. Because of that, Charles Spurgeon calls this, this chapter, calls this psalm, the sinner's guide. I've called it the roadmap of repentance. Because that's what we have here. We have a masterclass in what repentance looks like. We have step-by-step instruction on what biblical repentance is, turn-by-turn directions of repentance. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna go through turn-by-turn, step-by-step, and look at this process of repentance that's demonstrated in David's psalm. So. Because this is a roadmap, it starts with the overview, right? If you think back to the days of printing out your MapQuest directions, some of you are like, Thomas Guide, I never did that, I'm 32, 31, I don't know. Um, We think back to printing out your, your MapQuest directions, you print it out on the sheet, and what's at the top of the sheet? It's that picture of the whole map, right? The picture of the whole route. If I, if I were to go onto my phone right now and get directions somewhere, before I start route guidance, I get the picture of the whole route from start to finish. Then I hit go, and then it takes me step by step through it. Well, the psalm is structured similarly, because in the first two verses of Psalm 51, we get that whole route picture. We get that, that big overview of what David is going to talk about, the steps he's going to walk through in the whole rest of the psalm. We get the essence of the psalm in just the first two verses. So let's read them. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." So what is this? This is David making a plea. This is a a convicted, a condemned man pleading for mercy. But what's interesting is the basis of David's plea here. He is a condemned man standing before a righteous judge, and he's pleading for mercy, but no part of his plea is a plea of innocence. He doesn't say, God, I didn't know I was sinning. He doesn't say, God, I didn't sin that much. He doesn't say, God, I didn't do it. It was someone else. He pleads with God. He begs mercy of God, but he doesn't do it on the basis of any merit or righteousness in and of himself. He does it on the basis of God's character. The basis of God's character. He says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions according to your abundant mercy. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Right here in the first two verses, we see what this psalm is going to be. That it is going to be a guilty man pleading with a righteous God for mercy, for love, for grace, for favor. Not because he deserves it, but because he knows the character of God. That he is a loving and gracious king. Right in those first two verses, we we get a picture of what this psalm is. We get a picture of what repentance ultimately is, that it is a plea to a loving and merciful God. And then, the route guidance starts. Then we get this step-by-step instruction of what repentance is, what it looks like. So, what we'll see today is three key steps, of biblical repentance. Three key steps of biblical repentance. The first starts in verse three. That first step of biblical repentance that we see played out through David's psalm is to admit guilt, to admit guilt. I'll read verses three three through six for us. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. to admit guilt, and David begins this section, he begins his admission of guilt with recognition of his sin. He acknowledges his sin. He says in verse three, I know my transgressions. David understands that he is a sinner. I know my transgressions. But David's recognition of his sin is not merely intellectual. This is not a cold academic, yes, I understand I'm a sinner, blah, blah, blah. No, because he says, I know my transgressions. And then, what does he have to say after that? He says, my sin is ever before me. What is that? That's a heart broken by sin. That's a man who was so overcome by the grievousness of his sin that it is constantly before his eyes. That it obscures his view of everything else. He doesn't just intellectually acknowledge that he sinned. He doesn't just know it. It is the preoccupying thought in his mind. He is grieved by his sin. He feels sorrow for his sin. He feels pain for his sin, guilt for his sin. Because that's what recognition of sin is. If we say we recognize our sin, we know that we're a sinner, but it's a purely Academic, kind of sterile, um, unemotional knowledge of yes, I'm a sinner. Then we don't really recognize our sin because we're not treating it for what it is. No, actually recognizing our sin in a way that we can repent. It is part of it is being grieved by our sin, feeling sorrow over our sin, feeling pain over our sin. And that's what David communicates here in verse three. But Here's the incredible thing. Scripture tells us that that pain that we feel over sin, that sorrow, that grief, that guilt, is actually a good thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he talks about this idea of a godly Grief a godly grief, and he says that this godly grief is a good thing, why? Because it leads to repentance. You see, before we can truly repent of our sin, we have to weep for our sin. We have to sorrow over our sin. And David was certainly doing that. He was weeping for his sin, he was feeling sorrow over his sin, it was ever before his eyes, it was preoccupying his mind was always before him. And it's easy to see why, right? Because David's sin was incredible. I mean, this is a guy who committed adultery with the wife of one of his closest friends and then in order to keep from being found out, he had this man sent off to die. And Uriah went faithfully fighting for his king David who had stabbed him in the back. Cheated with his wife, and now is having him put to death. This is an incredible, egregious, disgusting, deplorable sin. And so it's easy to see why David would have his heart broken over this, why he would be racked with guilt over a sin like that. But what about my sin? I haven't, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't committed murder, So what about my sin? Should I really feel the guilt, the sting, the sorrow? Should my sin really always be before my eyes the way that David's is before his? Should we really grieve over gossip the same way that David grieved over murder? Well, I think to answer that question, we just have to look at verse 4. Or David says this as he continues with his admission of guilt here. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Make no mistake, David sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. But still here, what he says is against you, God, and you alone have I sinned. Now, why would he say that? Is that to minimize his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba? No. No, but it's because in the ultimate accounting of things, his sin against God is so much greater. Why? Because God himself is so much greater. See, the, the wrath, due to David's sin is in proportion to the righteousness of the one that he sinned against. The measure of trespass in his sin is in proportion to the measure of the majesty of the one he trespassed against. The guilt of his offense is in proportion to the glory of the one that he has offended. So his guilt is beyond comprehension because God's glory is beyond comprehension. His trespass is infinite because God's majesty is infinite. And the wrath that is due to him for his sin is never ending because God's righteousness is never ending. See, David's murder and his adultery, it was infinite sin because it was sin committed against an infinite God. And my pride And my lack of of self control and my gossip are infinite sins because they are sins that are committed against an infinite God. Our gluttony, our greed, our hatred, they're infinite sins because they are sins that are committed against an infinite God. So David's heart is grieved over his sin. Because he realizes that in the ultimate accounting of things, he has sinned against God. And that sin is infinite. And because of that, because his sin is so grievous, because his sin is against the king of all things, he continues on in the rest of the verse with this. So that, you're justi- so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in in your judgment. Because our sin is against an infinite, perfect, holy, righteous, majestic, glorious king, because of that, God is right to judge us. He is right to issue any punishment, any judgment that he deems fit because our sin is worthy of all punishment. J.I. Packer puts it like this, he says, the God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Romans 6.23 puts it a little more simply when it says simply that the wages of sin is death. That what we deserve for our sin, what David deserved for his, is death. It is ultimate, eternal, infinite punishment. The wages of murder is death. The wages of adultery is death. The wages of gluttony is death. The wages of greed is death. The wages of gossip is death. Why? Because it's infinite sin against an infinite God. But then David goes further. His admission of guilt doesn't stop there. He says, Yes, God, I see my sin, it it hurts me, it's always before my eyes. It is sin against you and you alone. Because of that I am deserving of all punishment. But then he goes further when he says that this sin is not something that is outside of him, it is something that is a part of his nature. He says, behold, in verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. David's not saying here that somehow the act of conception was sinful. He's simply pointing to the fact that this sin is not something outside of himself, but rather it is is a part of who he is in his nature. It is baked in to who he is, not some aberration. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we see the same concept. It says, We are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That every one of us, apart from Christ, sin is baked into who we are. It's not the fact that we slip up every now and then, that we do wrong things here and there. No, it is intrinsic to us. And so, that's what David admits here, this sin is not some aberration, it is baked into who he is. I was brought forth in iniquity. I was conceived in sin. And then we get to verse 6. And verse 6 is, is interesting because it's kind of hard to classify, right? If we, if we think of this psalm in terms of turn-by-turn directions, it's hard to say which direction verse 6 kind of fits into. Because verses one through five are such a clear statement, admission of guilt on David's behalf. And then we get to verse six, and it it doesn't have the same tone of this admission of guilt, but it doesn't quite fit into the rest uh, of where we're going next. It it doesn't doesn't fit him asking for grace either. Verse six says this, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And to, to make matters worse in terms of deciding where does this fit in kind of the map of Psalm 51, that the stanzas that we have in, in English poetry, those aren't, aren't things that map one-to-one to, to Hebrew poetry, so different translations will break up the stanzas differently. And they'll put verse 6, maybe with the verses I just read, maybe they'll put it down here in another section, just kind of where those paragraph breaks land in poetry, And so it makes it kind of hard to to fit it in and to understand where it fits in the flow of his argument. But I think the answer as to what David is getting at here in verse six is actually found back in 2 Samuel. So if we go to 2 Samuel, we look at the context of David writing this psalm. I want to read to you God's rebuke of David through the mouth of Nathan the prophet. Because I think it sheds light on what David's getting at here in verse six as he talks about God delighting in truth in the inward being and teaching him wisdom in his secret heart. So listen to this from 2 Samuel 12. Uh, We'll start in verse seven. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Listen to this. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Did you catch that? As God characterizes David's sin, this is what he says. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? As God is rebuking David for this sin, he characterizes it as despising the word of the Lord. So when David here is talking about how God delights to reveal truth to him, God God delights to give him wisdom. It is that wisdom and truth that God has freely given to David that David has despised, that he's hated, that he's sinned against. See, David here in, in evoking this, he's showing that he is not sinning out of ignorance, He's not sinning because he didn't know what he was doing was wrong. He's sinning because he hates the wisdom of God. He sinned because he despised God's instruction. He hated God's law. He despised God's wisdom. And so he sins not just against God, but he sins against God's instruction against God's wisdom, against God's word. He doesn't sin out of ignorance of what God would have him do. He sins out of hatred for it. See, that's true of David, but it's true of us as well. In the opening chapters of Romans, we see this play out. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, it says that God's eternal power His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived since the beginning of creation. That everyone who has ever lived has had some knowledge of who God is because they've seen it in creation around them. So they are without excuse. In Romans chapter two, it goes further and it says that the law of God is written on the hearts of men that all of us have some inherent understanding of what is right and what is wrong, of the moral law of God, because he has written it on the hearts of people made in his image. But those opening chapters of Romans also tell us that we've taken the truth of God and we've exchanged it for a lie. That just as David despised God's word, just as David despised God's truth, so do we. When we sin, we despise the wisdom and the instruction and the rules, the law of God. So David says, you delight in truth in the inward being, you teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Yet in spite of that, he still sins against God and despises his wisdom and his truth. That's David's admission of his guilt I know my sin. I see it constantly before me. It is, it is great. It is worthy of punishment. It is against you and you alone. It is a part of who I am. It's baked into my nature and it's because I despise your word. I despise your law. I despise your wisdom. That's David's admission of guilt but then we get to his next step here. After admitting his guilt The next key step that we get is to ask for grace. He asks God for grace. This is in verses seven through 12. Let me read them to you. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and and uphold me with a willing spirit. So after pouring out his guilt, after admitting the, the guiltiness of his sin, after admitting all of the horrible things that he's done, Now David comes before the throne of grace, before the throne of the king of the universe, and he asks for mercy. He asks for grace. And he asks for grace in three key areas. He asks for grace in in the form of restored moral purity. He asks for grace in the form of renewed joy. And he asks for grace in the form of a regenerated heart. So first, restored moral purity. There in verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David here is alluding to Old Testament laws of purity. Hyssop was an herb that was used in the cleansing ceremony for a person who was a leper. For a person who had leprosy, they would take hyssop, they would dip it in in the blood of a a dove, of a bird, and they would sprinkle that blood on the, the leper so that they may be made clean, that they may enter into the temple, that they may enter into the presence of God. And so here David is alluding to this and he's saying, God purge me with hyssop, make me clean, make me pure that I might be in your presence. In verse nine he says this, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. Usually in scripture when we hear this idea of God hiding his face it's used in a negative sense, right? It's, God, don't hide your face from me. God, don't, don't look away. Look on me with your face, with your favor. But here David is doing the opposite. He's saying, God, don't look at my sin. Turn your head away. Hide your face from my sin and then blot it out. It's this idea of expunging his sin from the record. Wiping his slate clean again. Again. Purge me with hyssop, make me clean, expunge this sin from my record. And then verse 11, he says this, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David had a front row seat to the fall of King Saul, a man who was was chosen by God to lead his people, who was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to lead his people wisely. But Saul sinned against God and ultimately what did God do? He took that favor. He took his presence away from Saul. He took his Holy Spirit and so here David is begging of God, God, do not deal with me as you have dealt with Saul. God, don't deal with me as I rightly, justly deserve. Don't take your spirit from me. God, don't cast me out of your presence. Wash me clean. Expunge my record that I might stand before you. So David pleads for grace. He asks for grace in the area of restored moral purity, but he asks for more than that. He also asks for a renewed joy. Verse eight, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The bones that you have broken. David has had his conscience harmed by his sin. Ever since he's done this terrible thing, it's been ever before his eyes. He's been in grief and in sorrow, in pain as if his bones are broken, and now he's saying, God, bring me out of sorrow and into joy. Let these bones that you have broken rejoice. Turn my my mourning into celebration. Not for my sin, but for your grace. Let these bones that you have broken rejoice. Puritan writer John Trapp says this. He says, in sin, pleasure passes. In sin, the pleasure passes, the sorrow remains. But in repentance, the sorrow passes, and the pleasure abides forever. God soon fills the broken heart of the penitent with the oil of gladness. We see this again in verse 12 when he says this, Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, David had given himself over to the fleeting pleasure of sin when he sinned with Bathsheba. That pleasure was temporary, but the pain of it was permanent. The pain was always before him. The guilt, the grief, the despair was always there. And so now David is going before God and saying, take that guilt and that grief and that pain away and restore that everlasting grief with everlasting joy. Because the joy of repentance is permanent. Why? Because it's not founded on some fleeting experience like the joy or, or the happiness or um, the experience of sin is. No, the joy of repentance is founded on the mercy and grace of a steadfast God. It's found in abiding favor. So David pleads for restored moral purity. He pleads for renewed joy. And then finally, the biggest ask of all, he pleads with God for a regenerated heart. We see that in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. See, David has already admitted that his sin goes more than skin deep. His sin is not simply a a way that he messes up here and there, but that it's baked into the fabric of who he is. It's part of his nature. And so if God were to grant him everything else but not give him a new heart, what's the point? If God restores his moral purity and wipes his slate clean, God gives him joy, the joy of salvation. But he doesn't give him a new heart. Well, that slate that just been cleaned is going to be dirty again real fast, isn't it? That joy is going to turn to mourning very quickly, won't it? Because it's part of who he is. It's part of his nature and so David doesn't just need restored moral purity, he doesn't just need renewed joy, he needs a regenerated heart. He needs God to create in him a clean heart. We see similar language come up in Ezekiel chapter 36 where God promises to take the heart of stone that is in his people and to give them a heart of flesh. To give them a heart of flesh, to give them the Holy Spirit and to cause them to walk In his ways. Thomas Watson, in that book about repentance that I was talking about at the beginning, um, he says this He says that we often hate sin in our judgment, but we love it in our affections. We we often hate sin in our judgment, but we love it in our affections. That, That is to say, that our mind says that it's evil, but our hearts desire it. And so, in order to truly repent, to truly turn from our sin, We don't just need to be forgiven. We need new hearts. We need new affections. We need new loves. We can't say that that's wrong, but I love it. That's not true repentance. We need to be given new hearts, new loves, new affections. And that's what David is asking God for here. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. And so David makes these incredible, audacious pleas. God, give me moral purity, give me joy, give me a new heart. But David makes these pleas on no basis of his own righteousness. He makes no appeal to the fact that he is the king over God's people. Makes no appeal to all the psalms that he's written. All the good that he's done, no appeal to any of that at all. His only appeal is to the nature of God, the character of God. His only appeal is on the basis of God's mercy and his grace and his love. Because David can look back to his own life and he can see the mercy, the grace, the love, the faithfulness of God played out. As God saved him from the sword of Saul... As he sustained him in the wilderness for years. As he saved him from the sword of Goliath. David can look back at God's faithfulness throughout his entire life and know the character of God. But more than that, David can look back on the history of God's faithfulness to his people. He can look at how God brought his people out of Egypt. He can look at how God's people constantly turned their backs on him throughout the period of the judges and did what was evil in his sight. And yet when they repented and they turned to the Lord, he showed them mercy and grace and he liberated them from captivity time and time and time again. David can look to all of that and because of that he knows the character of God and he can make a plea to God based not on David's merit but on God's character. And we can look to all of that too. But there's something that we have, something that we can look to that David didn't have, that David couldn't look to. Because we have the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate culmination, the ultimate demonstration of God's love for his people. We have the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter 5 we'll start in verse eight as we see this incredible demonstration of God's love and his mercy and his grace. Romans five, eight says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, David went and he made a plea to God on the basis of God's character. And when we repent, when we admit our guilt, and when we ask for grace, we do it on the basis of yes, God's character. But ultimately, on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross. We come before the throne of grace, we admit our guilt, we ask for mercy, on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf, on how God has demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, sinful in our nature, Christ died for us. As we think of David's three pleas here for moral purity, for joy, and for a new heart, Let's look back at Romans 5, verse 9. Moral purity. We ask for moral purity from God. God says this, since therefore we have now been justified, made right, made morally pure by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. The moral purity that David is asking for is offered to us in the blood of Jesus. Joy Look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The joy of salvation is offered to us through the reconciliation that Christ brings us with God. He offers us moral purity, he offers us renewed joy. Finally, he offers us a regenerated heart. Verse 10. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see, we're saved from the penalty of our sin by the blood of Christ, by Him dying in our place and taking the penalty of our sin, that infinite penalty, death, taking it on Himself in our place. But that's not all that He does. He doesn't just wipe our record clean, He also gives us new life. We're given moral purity by his death, but we are given new hearts and new lives by his resurrection. That Because he rose again, we too can have new life in him, be raised again in him, be made new creatures by the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit. The three things that David pleads for here, restored moral purity, renewed joy, regenerated heart, every one of them is offered to us freely in Jesus Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Every one of them is ours because of Jesus, because of the character, the grace, the mercy, the love of our God shown in our Savior. So David's three steps to biblical repentance, it starts with admitting guilt, it moves to asking for grace, and then finally, just briefly, we act to glorify, we act in ways that glorify Him. Turn back with me to Psalm 51. Start in verse 13. It says this: Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. So after admitting guilt and asking for grace, here, the next step in our repentance It's not just turning from our sin, but turning towards God and walking with him in obedience. It is acts that glorify him. David gives us three acts that glorify him here. The first is to witness. Witness there in verse 13. Then, in light of you granting me all of this mercy, because David knows that God will grant him the mercy that he asks for. In light of this, in light of you showing me this mercy, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David's talking here of evangelism, right? He's talking about telling others about the mercy, the grace of God. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's such good news, of course we want to say it. Some of us get really squeamish around evangelism about the idea of talking to others about our faith. But David here presents it as as if it's a a done deal. Because it's the natural reaction to being given such a gift. A few weeks ago, we had, we had church on Christmas morning. And I was over there with, with the kids and uh, I, it, was, it was great. I'm so glad. Um, I guess I wasn't over there. We were all in here on Christmas, weren't we? But um, I'm so glad that, that we had that time to just celebrate Christ's birth on Christmas morning. But as I was walking around, kids were coming up to me. And do you know what? Almost every single one of them were telling me. Like they were so excited. They were pumped full of of sugar and all the candy from their stocking. They had like candy cane red smears all over their face, right? It was great. And every one of me, every one of them, what they wanted to tell me was they wanted to tell me what they got. They wanted to tell me what their present was. They wanted to tell me what, what Santa brought them, right? And they were so excited to share this gift that they had been given, to tell me all about it. My own kids, they, they carried their Christmas presents everywhere we went for probably a week because they wanted to show, Grant wanted to show off this pirate ship that he had gotten. He wanted everyone to know about it because he was so excited. As the natural response to being given something of incredible value is to want to tell others about it. And so here David is saying, in light of your mercy and your grace, I'm going to tell others that they might turn to you and also receive that same grace. So he starts with witness, but he doesn't stop there. He continues, and he talks about worship. Worship, verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. See, the natural reaction to being saved from such an incredible guilt is not simply to tell others, but it's to sing the praises of God. It's to open our mouths and joyously worship him for his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love and kindness. And then finally, this last act to glorify that David talks about here is to walk in gratitude. To walk in gratitude and walk in obedience. There's something a little tricky here, right, in verses 16 and 19. In verse 16, it says, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. But then in verse 19, it says this, you will delight in right sacrifice and in burnt offering. So which is it? Does God delight in sacrifice, or does he not delight in sacrifice? What's the difference? What's the distinction? Well, I think the answer comes in verse 17. Verse 17. And David says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, the difference between obedience that God delights in and shallow obedience that he doesn't, the difference is motivation. The difference between right and wrong sacrifice is motivation. We are not to obey God to do what he says simply out of a a self-righteous sense of legalism or even just out of fear of punishment because that kind of righteousness, Isaiah 64 tells us, is like filthy rags before God. That kind of sacrifice is not pleasing to him. But we're called in Romans 12 to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Why? Why? Well, in Romans 12.1, he says, I appeal to you by God's mercy to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. So we are to obey God, we are to offer ourselves, offer our lives as sacrifice to him, not out of a sense of self-righteousness or legalism, but out of a sense of gratitude for the fact that we are sinners deserving of eternal punishment, but God in his mercy and grace has given us moral purity, he's given us joy, And he's given us new hearts. We are to obey him and to walk in gratitude with him because our hearts are broken by sin, because we've been forgiven, and because we desire him above all else. So here's the question I want to leave you with this morning. Has your heart been broken for your sin? Has your heart been broken for your sin? Because that's step one on this roadmap to repentance. Repentance. It's for our hearts to break, that we might admit our guilt. If your heart is not broken over your sin, if you don't sorrow over your sin, if you're not grieved by your own sin, then pray that you would be. Pray that God, in his mercy and grace, would grant you the mercy of grief, of godly grief that leads to repentance. Repentance. If your heart's not broken by sin, pray that it would be. And if your heart is broken by sin, then praise God, now repent. Praise God, now repent. Some of you here this morning, you've never repented. You've never turned from your sin and admitted your guilt. You've never thrown yourself at the feet of the throne of mercy. And if that's you, I would encourage you, do that this morning. If you've never repented, but you feel your heart broken by the weight of your sin, then confess your sin. Because as 1 John 1 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. For those of you, though, who have repented, who know Christ, who have been saved by Christ, you need to know that this act of repentance is not over. It's not over, it is ongoing. Why? Because our sin is ongoing. Because as long as we're on this side of eternity, we continue to sin, and so we continue to be called to repentance. May we continue to be grieved by our sin so that we can go before God, admit our guilt, ask for the grace that we know that he freely offers through Jesus Christ and that we may act in ways that glorify him for our entire lives.